0: Today is the first day of our summer seven-day and 9th of January 2021, and the text we're going to take up for these first few days is uh, called Swampland Flowers, the Letters and Lectures of Zen Master Da Hui. Um, It's translated by uh, Christopher Cleary. It's a It's an old favorite. It's been around a long time. It was um, published in in 1977. I've heard many Teixos from this book and and um, Given a lot too though. I see looking at my notes that we haven't um, Read from this for seven years, so it seemed like it would be a a good time to take it up um, and we're going to skip around in the text. Um, most of the text is translations of uh, letters that Dahwe wrote to his um, disciples, uh, m- uh, mostly to lay people, so people uh, like us with all kinds of um, worldly cares and responsibilities. So um, this is, I think this is one of the reasons why his his um, teachings are so uh, uh, current, and of course, the other thing about teachings being current is um, that that he's addressing our, our deepest aspirations, our deepest questions, and um, Of course, these these um, are universal things, so they they don't um, um, wear out, so to speak. They stay relevant. Uh, But before we get into um, Swampland Flowers itself, um, instead of the usual biographical material, straight biographical material, I'm going to. um, Read from another book which I ha- haven't finished reading um, it's, it's reasonably new um, uh, Let's see, when is it published Just, yeah, just uh, 2019 And um, it's it's called The Circle of the Way um, It's by Barbara O'Brien Who's, who's a Zen student um, it's a it's a history of Zen from the time of the Buddha up until now. And um, what I can say about it so far is it's very it's very accessible. Um, having been exposed to a lot of the history um, over the years, it's it's um, good to have a, a text that's kind of draws it all together and give it some, gives it some shape. And um, and it's very readable, very easy to read. But there is a certain um, section which deals with Da Hui, because he's such an important figure in the history of Chan and Zen. And that's the part that I'd like to read from, because I think it helps to to put his teaching in context and uh, place, place him in time as well. Um, so the section we're going to be reading from is, is entitled Dahui Zongao and Huado Contemplation, and his dates are uh, 1089 to 1163. So he died uh, 37 years before Master Dogen was born. And he was born at this, uh, in the um, near the beginning of the the Song Dynasty, this this rich rich period in the history of China. Um, She starts off by by saying that, uh, pointing out that Da Hui Zonggao was uh, a contemporary of Hongzhou, and she says he was he was Hongzhou's contemporary friend and nemesis. Which I think is probably a bit dramatic, but um, it, it's pointing to this that these two great teachers who were, who were contemporaries uh, but it had very different teaching methods. And she said that just the previous bit that we haven't read is, is about Hongzhou and his um, teaching of. Uh, Mo Jiao, or silent illumination, and we'll say a bit more that, of that about that in a minute. So, born 1089, died 1163. This is Dahui. He was a Dharma heir of uh, Yuan Wu Kei And uh, Yuan Wu was um, one of the Compilers of the Hekigan Roku, the Blue Cliff Record. At, at one, in that regard, at one point, Daihui actually burned the Hekigan Roku because he felt that it was unhelpful to, to people's um, training. She says, in his day, Da Hui was the most respected Zen teacher in China. He received the title Great Master Buddha Sun, S-U-N, from a high government official while he was only in his 30s. And like Hongzhou, Hong he, um, he had a devoted following among the literati, the, the, people of, uh, the cultured people of the time. Da Hui had just received transmission from Yuan Wu and was teaching in the north when the Jurchen in, invaded, forcing master and disciple to move south. The Jurchen were the, the um, tended to be called the, bar- the barbarians by the, the uh, Han Chinese, but they were the northern people who um, rose up against the, the Song dynasty. So he lived in a, in a, a time of, of um, upheaval. Actually, in this regard, just a little bit from the biography that appears in the um, Swampland Flowers. And just to set the scene a bit more, Cleary says, Dawei was born into the cosmopolitan world of the Song Dynasty. It was an age when both rationalistic philosophy and practical invention flourished, when printed books multiplied and the arts reached a mature sophistication still admired today. Communication and commerce intensified. Five Chinese cities had populations of over a million. Talents from all over the country were drawn to the brilliant circles in the imperial capital. This was no charmed golden age, unselfconscious and unquestioning. The political sensibilities of many upper-class Chinese were affronted by the relative weakness of the dynasty towards the powerful barbarian states, this is the Jurchen, pressing in on the northeast and northwest, and reform measures to strengthen the government and augment its revenue were great issues of controversy among gentlemen of affairs. The productive classes... Felt the pressure directly as it was they who had to finance the swollen ineffective army and the heavy payments of silver and silk sent as tribute to the enemy. Pressure of taxation undercut the position of small producers more and more of whom had to give up their independence for the patronage of a big landlord who could fend off the tax burden through political pull. As the government tried to increase its revenue it succeeded more in driving the nation's wealth beyond its own reach into powerful private hands, while millions of little people were deprived of their livelihood altogether. You might have find some resonances there with, with uh, the present. So th- those were kind of the conditions that led to the war that um, uh, meant that, that uh, Dawi had to move. Um, south. In 1134, Dawei was living in a hermitage in Fujian province, possibly seeking shelter from the continuing warfare, or perhaps he just needed seclusion. While there, he began writing blistering denunciations of silent illuminations in This is um, the, the English translation of the word Uh, for what Hungja taught, Mojao, silent illumination, and this was what um, was later inherited by Dogen and became Shikantaza in um, Japan. So just a little bit more about um, Mojao here. my page yeah. oh, I I'll just look it up in the index. There we are. So silent illumination or is for, for those of you who may not know what this is, um, early Buddhism identified two kinds of meditation called in Sanskrit shamata dwelling in peace and vipassana clear seeing Shamata techniques are about pacifying the mind and cultivating serenity I can include their concentration often while vipassana is about fostering insight Kongje said that silent illumination represents a balance between these two. In his guidepost of silent illumination, he wrote that if illumination neglects serenity, aggressiveness appears, and if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. Mojo Chan, then, is about entering a serene illumination. O'Brien says, but illumination of what? Generally, meditation, Buddhist and non-Buddhist, focuses on something. The something might be an image, a visualization, a phrase, a sound, one's breath, the Buddha, something. But in Mojo Chan, one maintains awareness of the entire present experience. In this way, Hongjo said, discriminating habits of mind fall away, including thoughts of achievement or merit. Even distinctions between in here, meaning inside us, and out there, meaning in um, the environment, disappear. Although this illumination is called silence, This is not the silence of a sensory deprivation tank. It is instead a profound openness, open inside and outside. Awareness of the entire present experience includes sounds, smells, and sights, experienced without attachments or judgments. Everywhere sense faculties and objects both just happen, Hongzhou wrote when you reach the truth without middle or edge, cutting off before and after, then you realize one wholeness. It's just a uh, um, short just summing up of, of um, this Mojow practice, the silent illumination that they came in Japan. just sitting. She can tell Now back to, to Da Hui. In brief, Da Hui saw Mao Mao Chan as too passive and not conducive to realizing enlightenment. For example, in 1149, he wrote in a letter the very worst of all heretical views, is that of silent illumination, with which people become entrenched in a ghostly cave, not uttering a word and being totally empty and still, seeking the ultimate peace and happiness. Um, and she, O'Brien has that in Zen, the ghostly cave, um, is a term that refers to a um, kind of um, meditative dead end um, that, is, that may be quite relaxing and pleasant, but, but doesn't lead to enlightenment. And it can be distinguished from enlightenment in that it's reliant to some degree on conditions. And when uh, perfect conditions are uh, no longer there, then this, this peace and happiness um, doesn't, doesn't last, it disappears. You could say that um, you could say that Dahui here is is um, criticizing meditation as escapism, where we're just seeking some some relief from our discomfort, kind of pleasant pleasant states, peaceful states. Da Hui, um wrote that practitioners of, of silent illumination did not appreciate the distinction between inherent and actualized enlightenment. This is something that is taught in, in um, a, a text, a Chinese Chan text called Awakening of faith that yes we're all inherently enlightened. this is this is the f- a fundamental teaching going all the way back to the Buddha's um, alignment and what he said at that point—that um, we all, we all, um, all beings are Buddhas, as the Buddha said—but um, this has to be actualized. It has to be uh, made real. So not just glimpsed, not just understood, but um, brought into our, into the, the very um, fiber of our being. Dawei wrote, if everything is enlightenment, how could there be delusion? And if you say there is no delusion, how could it be that old Shakyamuni suddenly was awakened when the morning star appeared, and he understood that his own essential nature had existed from the very beginning? Therefore it is said that with the actualization of enlightenment, one merges with the inherent enlightenment. So these two ways of viewing enlightenment. Um, at a certain point 11, 1141 Dahwe was um, forced to disrobe and sent into exile in Hunan province um, as often with these far distant times what actually happened was pretty murky but it's possibly that he was had a close association one, perhaps one of his students was um, a member of a group that opposed um, the government's policies towards the, the um, uh, so-called barbarians, the, the um, Jin dynasty. Or it possibly could be that his, his polemical criticisms of other um, Buddhist practitioners annoyed the emperor and, and he was sent into, into um, exile to uh, shut him up. You know, it's not clear. But while he was in um, exile, he continued to teach, teach and write uh, prolifically and to um, speak out at times um, about um, silent illumination practice. In 1155, Da Wei was forgiven by the emperor, and the following year he became abbot of a temple at Mount Ayuang in Zhejiang, which was very near to Hongzhou's Tian Tung Monastery. Uh, when when Richard and I were in China, we, we visited these two uh, two ancient uh, seats of Chan, and they were really um, very close. You could um, you could probably um, for us it was just a short taxi ride between the two. Um, but at that, at, at Dahui's time, it'd probably be possible to to um, walk there in a day, I would think. um, So they were were, um, a stone throw from each other, these two masters. And um, O'Brien writes, Despite Dahwe's well-known criticisms of silent illumination, the two teachers became friends and referred students to each other. In time, Da Hui was reassigned to another temple, but shortly before he died, Hong requested in his will that Da Hui take charge of his affairs. And that would include probably his writings and really um, uh, evidence of the closeness of their relationship. Zen teachers today point to Da Hui and Hongzhou's friendship to argue that Da Hui was not critical of silent illumination per se. He merely criticized people who weren't doing it right. And I think there's quite a lot in this, especially the evidence that these two um, referred students, surely if he really had disapproved of this teaching, he wouldn't be sending his, uh, his students to work um, with Hongzhou. There are people who argue um that, that uh, he was a taking sign of illumination and it probably depends on your point of view which which um, uh, view you hold I don't think it's um, Particularly useful to get into that, into into an argument about that, um, but in our in our tradition, um, we teach we teach both, and uh, it's a matter of, of uh, more of temperament about or timing about which is going to be the most helpful for a student. Then this um, passage gets on to um, the teaching that was particularly emphasized by Da Hui. Kan Hua Chan, Hua dou, Contemplation. In place of Mo Zhao Chan, Da Hui taught what later came to be called Kan Hua Chan, or the Chan of Investigating a Topic of Inquiry. This meant u- using Gungan it's the Chinese for koan, as objects of meditation. Teachers before Da Hui taught students to contemplate gugan in the sense of mulling over what they might be expressing. The guangang stories had been included in sermons and commentaries from the beginning of the Song dynasty. Uh, and many of, of course, many of the stories in those sermons and commentaries are from the previous centuries from the Tang dynasty. But Da Hui made the Gong'an into a, an object of meditative inquiry. He formalized it, we could say. Da Hui and his followers would extract this essential point or critical phrase from a Gong'an and use it as an object of concentration meditation. This essential point is the Hua rao, or the tr- crux of the Gong'an, the nub. Um, and an example of this, if we take... Um, that many people take up at the start. Mu. The the uh, case. The koan, full koan is, does ask the question: Does even a dog have the Buddha nature? And Joshu replies: Mu. That's the koan. The crux of the koan is what you can the the essence of it, or what you can boil it down to, and then work on. So. In this case, the, 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 the crux or nub or essential point of this little drama between Joshua and the, and the, the monk is, is simply the word mu. So you, when you work on it, you boil it all down to that, this one word and bore into your mind using that one word. O'Brien points out that in China, often um, a practitioner might work on one Do for his or her entire life, going deeper and deeper into it. Later, the the, the tradition that that um, we've come from had would develop a, a kind of koan curriculum that goes through. We go through. Um, many koans, but uh, might spend a very long time on a first one, and also come back to it, come back to these these basic questions again and again, in between doing other koans. Um, Somebody recently asked me, well, um, surely if you understand one, you you, um, understand all of them, and this is true in a certain sense, and certainly if you have a very deep Awakening, then that is the case. Um, but usually the awakening is not quite so deep, and one can benefit from coming at the truth from many different angles and, and revisiting it, so to speak. So the um, kinds all point to the same uh, truth about our being, about our true nature, um, but uh, have different forms. As Dua, Da Hui described it, Hua dou meditation begins when a Gong'an koan stirs the student's interest, which Da Hui called taste, or wei in Chinese. This is something um, like a, a pivotal moment, uh, a moment of uh, One's, you could say, one's inherent Buddha nature um, rising up. O'Brien calls it a moment of shimmering potential. She says, it's like a, a strange, intriguing shape on the horizon that you can't quite make out, or a movement spotted in the depths of a lake. What is that? You are compelled to investigate. You will have no rest until the mystery is solved. The student who relates to the gung An as if it were just a trick question wanting a glib answer isn't ready for Hua So it's, it's necessary to have this, this strong sense of, of curiosity, perplexity. This state, this taste soon leads to doubt, yi ching, because the Gong'an cannot be understood intellectually. Trying to figure out what the gungan is saying leaves the student frustrated, as if gnawing on an iron rod, Da Hui said. Intellectual means exhausted. The student sits with the Huado, the critical phrase or keyword of the Gong'an letting it sink into deep places beyond the reach of conceptual thought. Eventually, the hua pervades her being. The strange, intriguing shape on the horizon isn't out there. It's in here, and it's also everywhere. Gee, I think this is a good description, getting at, at how, um, how the koan works on us. And it's really important to understand that, that it's, 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 it's a matter of allowing it to, to um, ferment in us, transform us. Then she goes on to speak a little bit about this doubt or, or perplexity, yi ching. The English word doubt usually means something like distrust or hesitancy to believe or accept. In early Buddhism, doubt in Pali um, Vichikicca was one of the five hindrances that got in the way of practice. The other four are sensual desires, ill will, sloth and restfulness. Vichikicca is sometimes translated sceptical doubt. The Buddha compared uh, a monastic infested with doubt, and it is skeptical doubt, he compared this person to a wealthy merchant crossing a desert full of bandits, uh, leaving him anxious and unsure which route to take, so so someone who vacillates, or hesitates, or holds back. The antidote to this doubt, it was taught, was trust, especially in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, um, and trust in the practice and that it would unfold as needed. The Chinese word I Ching suggests more of a sense of puzzlement than a fearful anxiety or scepticism. But what begins as puzzlement becomes an intense not knowing that grows to engulf the student's entire being. Ordinary doubt is is directed at some external object such as the koan itself or the teacher, but when it has been directed back to oneself, it is transformed into great doubt. Writes Victor Sogun Hori, he's a, a Rinzai, Canadian Rinzai teacher. Sheng Yin, Master Sheng Yin, who we, we've often heard from, asserts that great doubt does not mean skepticism or suspicion but an intense unease and wonderment that becomes an all-consuming questioning. Dawe said that the doubt centered in the Wado becomes like a hot metal ball one can neither swallow nor spit up. might put This might put some people off. I guess then can't be um, accused of false advertising. Skipping around here, but going a bit further forward in the text, O'Brien um, says it takes a, lot of deal, a great deal of trust, in other words, to, to give rise to this, this doubt. And this is one of the paradoxes of it. It takes a great deal of trust in the Dharma, in the practice, and so on, to be, to be able to engage in this intense investigation. To return to the Buddha's analogy of a rich merchant crossing the desert, if the merchant is filled with great doubt, he's not frozen with vichikeccha and looking over his shoulder for bandits. He's fearlessly questioning the nature of his own existence. A different kind of state. Common chan wado includes uh, such questions as, what was my original face before I was born? Uh, or, who is dragging this corpse around? What is this? And, and then she says, and then of course there's the one about the dog. Zhao Zhou's dog, the great Wu. Um, throughout this text, um, Wu is used but I'm going to try and replace it with Mu since that's the the term that we're more familiar with, the Japanized version of the Chinese. Most Western Zen students will recognize the Chinese Wu as the Japanese Mu. Da Hui recommended the Huado Wu, which was extracted from the Gong'an called Zhaozhou's Dog. And we already mentioned this, the the basic case. A monk asks Jaojo, it's Joshu in uh, the Japanese pronunciation, does a dog have a Buddha nature or not? And Jaojo says, Mu. We'll stick with that. Sometimes Wu or Mu is left untranslated, but basically it signals negation. And is commonly, commonly translated as "not," "no," or "does not have." Why, Moo? Bedrock Mahayana doctrine says Buddha nature permeates all beings, and dogs do qualify as beings. But to ponder this gongan in terms of the dog or any other living creature existing as a standalone thing that possesses or not. The extant quality Buddha nature means somebody hasn't been paying attention. Yet a great many academic Buddhologists have declared that Zhaozhou was merely weighing in on whether animals did or did not not possess Buddha nature as humans do. No, academic Buddhologists, that will not do. How how do we understand beings? This This is really the question here. how do we understand Buddha nature? She says, the question presented in Zhao Zhou's dog isn't so much about a doctrine of Buddha nature It is, as it is about the nature of being. The nature of being. The mystery of being alive? How is it that there is something rather than nothing? And what is the nature of that something? What is, is our own nature? Da Hui said that Mu is a knife to sunder the doubting mind of birth and death. Don't hold on to to birth and death and the Buddha path as existent, he said. Do not deny them as non-existent. Don't be concerned with awakening or not awakening. Make no distinctions. Don't objectify anything. Just contemplate Mu. Put the mind and Mu together until the mind has no place to go. And then, suddenly, it's like awakening from a dream, like a lotus flower opening, like parting the clouds and seeing the moon. It's a quote from Dawei. So we saw he really kind of drives us into the corner with these instructions. Okay, we can, we can understand not to hold birth and death and the Buddha path as existent. That's, that's the teaching of emptiness in, in Buddhism. Okay, okay, got that bit. But then he says, do not deny them as non-existent. Don't be concerned about awakening or not awakening make no distinctions don't objectify anything the wonderful thing with a koan is that we have a tool with which we can we can we can f- follow these instructions put them into practice but we it involves letting go go with all of our normal um, kind of problem solving techniques As is explained repeatedly in Zen commentaries and Dharma talks, language cannot be relied on. Language is built on conceptualization, especially as we now know through evolutionary biology how the human brain evolved to decipher and navigate reality. It does this by slicing reality into pieces that become nouns and predicates and objects connected by verbs conjunctions and prepositions when we put reality together again we find ourselves in a place where language no longer functions even the buddha could not describe it so the old teachers fell back on poetry and illusion parting the clouds and seeing the moon is about as close as anyone can get to it having had this experience is the student enlightened? Well, the student already was enlightened. It cannot be emphasized enough that enlightenment is not a quality that some people possess and others do not. In many ways, this, this first breakthrough that, that Dahwe is talking about is not the end of the path, but a kind of beginning. Teachings that seem nonsensical before will begin to clarify, but some haze will remain. This is why Mu has been called the barrier gate. Once through it, there is more to be realized, but insight becomes more possible. Insights, really insights that, that weren't possible before now are possible, but still have to be realized. These opening experiences are called many things, but it's most important to keep in mind that they are not exclusive to Huado practice, or Zen, or even Buddhism. Huado is simply one method that has been found to be effective for bringing them on. Um, the the debates, um, um, Brian O'Brien says rivalry, but I think this is again is, is maybe. To divisive, the debates about Mo Jiao Chan and Kan Hwa Chan continue in some circles. But she says, uh, many of us who have practiced both can tell you that the methodologies each have strengths and weaknesses. Choosing which is better is an individual matter. Practitioners of both do experience the actualization of enlightenment and likewise practitioners of both do run into difficulties the goal-oriented practice of solving koans can cause some to lose sight of Matsu's ordinary mind teaching mazu is an early master chan master who is ex- extremely influential and uh, he was the one um, with whom um, the teachings of ordinary mind originated. Remember in the um, opening words last night, I talked about a, a young Joshu asking um, Nansen, what is the way? And, and Nansen said, ordinary mind is the way. Well, Nansen was one of Matsu's Dharma heirs. So he was his teaching what he had received from, from Matsu. And and here's what Matsu says about ordinary (coughs) mind. If one wants to know the way directly, ordinary mind is the way. What do I mean by ordinary mind? It is a mind that is devoid of contrived activity and is without notions of right and wrong, grasping and rejecting, terminable and permanent, worldly and holy. The Villa McCurtie scripture says, neither the practice of ordinary people nor the practice of sages, neither the practice of ordinary people nor the practice of sages, that is the Bodhisattva's practice. Just now, whether walking, standing, sitting or reclining, responding to situations and dealing with people as they come, everything is the way. So it can feel like with a, with koan practice that we're imposing stuff or something, uh, this question, on top of just our, our normal everyday activities, walking, standing, sitting. If that is the way, why do we need to add something like a question on top of it? But um, actually... Um, The koan can help us to, to strip away what, what comes between us and our, and our ordinary mind. It can, can allow us to um, realize the mind that he, uh, Imadji says, devoid of contrived activity. This ordinary ordinary mind is is another way of talking about about no mind. Mind in which our, our concepts of things don't get in between us and reality. It's all of a piece. Silent illumination, when not understood, can become nothing but a stress reduction technique. Put another way, a one-sided devotion to koan contemplation can become arid, intellectual, and disconnected from reality, writes James Ford. He's a, he's a living Zen teacher. Um, so that's on the one side, koan, how koan contemplation has its limits. And then he says... And a one-sided attachment to just sitting practice can slip into torpidity, into a mere quietism, and this is 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 what Dahwe was railing against, and that we should be um, vigilant about in our own practice, to not on and on both of these, both not getting into a kind of grim. Uh, Goal-oriented kind of koan practice, or into um, into mere quietism, just getting to a, a, um, getting all the conditions right, um, so that we can experience just um, a quiet mind. It's it's that's a good base, but we have to go further than that. So that's our that's a bit of um, background on on Dahui. Now we've still got a little bit little bit of time left, um, so we have time maybe for one one teaching from two little teachings from Dahui and Professor. We're t- returning back to our, our text, Swampland Flowers. This is headed up, Contemplating Mu. A monk monk asked Zhao Zhou, Joshu, Does a dog have the Buddha nature or not? And Zhao Zhou said, Mu. This one word, Mu, is a knife to sunder the doubting mind of birth and death. The handle of this knife is in one's own hand alone. You can't have anyone else wield it for you. To succeed, you must take hold of it yourself. You consent to take hold of it yourself only if you can abandon your life. If you cannot abandon your life, just keep to where your doubt remains unbroken for a while. Suddenly you'll consent to abandon your life and then you'll be done. Uh, here to understand this abandon your life He's not... Um, Telling us to commit suicide or kill ourselves, um, or to um, reject our our life, rather he is is um, calling on us to set aside all our preferences, all our thoughts about self, our, um, our self preoccupations. And he says, if we if we if we nurture our doubts about birth and death, then we'll at some point um, this this um, willingness to abandon our life will arise because we'll we'll see the futility of of um, holding on to that which is is um, impermanent, unreliable. Only then will you believe that when quiet, it's the same as when noisy. When noisy, it's the same as when quiet. When speaking, it's the same as when silent. And when silent, it's the same as when speaking. You won't have to ask anyone else, and naturally you won't accept the confusing talk of false teachers. During your daily activities, 24 hours a day, you shouldn't hold to birth and death and the Buddha path as existent, nor should you deny them as non-existent, just contemplate this. A monk asked Zhao Zhou, "Does even a dog have a Buddha nature have a Buddha, Sorry, does a dog have the Buddha nature or not?" Zhao Zhou said, "Moo." Okay, we'll stop there and we'll recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.